Welcome to Speaking Out. Mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. With Larissa Barrett. It's a fresh view coming on. ABC Radio. Accountable policing and the challenges of implementing meaningful reform in the justice sector. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. The Black Lives Matter movement has highlighted the need for systemic reforms to our justice systems nationally, putting the spotlight specifically on policing and accountability. On Speaking Out this evening, we're featuring the discussion Black Lives Matter, a roadmap for policing and justice reform in Australia. The conversation, which was held online and hosted by the Redfern Legal Centre and the National Justice Project, saw a group of the country's foremost academic and legal minds come together to propose changes to the criminal justice system. The death of African-American man George Floyd at the hands of police in Minneapolis earlier this year put Australia's own track record of police brutality and systemic racial bias back into the public consciousness. In response to the Black Lives Matter movement, the United States is about to propose a bill to reform policing, so it begs the question. With more than 434 Aboriginal deaths in custody since the 1991 Royal Commission and seemingly no action on the alarmingly high rates of Indigenous incarceration, what reforms should occur here and who is best placed to implement them? To explore this further, tonight you'll hear from Industry Professor of Indigenous Policy at the Jumbana Institute, Lyndon Coombs, Professor of Criminology at the Jumbana Institute, Chris Kinney, and Samantha Lee, Police Accountability Solicitor at the Redfern Legal Centre. We pick up the conversation with Lyndon Coombs reflecting on the impact that George Floyd's death has had internationally and the lessons to be learned from it here in Australia. The issues that people have experienced with police in both the United States and Australia are clearly not recent phenomenon. And there were always things bubbling away and we have seen riots and responses to previous police incidents. Um, What has surprised me is the duration and focus of this particular movement. Usually it's sort of, there's an event, the 24-hour news cycle takes over and we forget pretty quickly as a society why people were upset, why this thing happened and why we need reform. So this has been a, a sustained focus and that has surprised me. In terms of lessons for Australia, we are constantly hearing that we are not the United States. And yes, there are differences. In some ways, we're worse with our incarceration rate of Indigenous people. But to ignore those lessons is simply not an option. What the death of George Floyd has shown is that these things happen here. They just don't seem to be as spectacular or as newsworthy for some reason in this country. But I do think that's changing as well. And the reason that it is changing is we're capturing it. These things are being filmed. It was only a few weeks ago, a young Aboriginal boy in Redfern had his feet swept, landed on his face, and that became a a significant news item. Now, if that wasn't filmed, that wouldn't have happened. And we know what would have happened with the police officer and the incident, it would have gone away. So for all of those reasons... This has sparked something and whether it's because people are at home during COVID and they've got more time to sort of sit and watch things and take a bigger interest, I don't know. But this one has stuck and and that's been a surprise. Thank you. Chris, you've been working in the policing space for many, many years and across a range of quite significant reports and reviews into the area of policing and over-representation. And I wonder what your thoughts are on why we've suddenly reached a tipping point, which I'm sure you've not seen at any other time during the time you've been working in this space. Why have we reached that tipping point? And what do you think we should be putting a spotlight on as a result of that? Look, I think to the extent that there's been a tipping point, I think it's it comes from disillusionment, I think, with the lack of change. You know, we've seen 30 years since the Royal Commission, which everyone's aware of. And, you know, there's been discussion, endless amounts of discussion about improving police training, improving use of force, 
cross-cultural training, diversity in recruitment, courses against implicit bias and so on and so forth. And I guess we're left with the question, well, what does all that mean after 30 years when we're still seeing exactly the same types of problems over and over again? The deaths in custody, whether they're in police custody or prison custody, many of those deaths, certainly most of those deaths, are replicas of the types of deaths that were investigated by the Royal Commission over the decade of the 1980s. And so, you know, I think there is a disillusionment in terms of what's been promised and what's actually happened. And I think that's really kind of underpins, if you like, this call for change, this demand for change, which is captured in those couple of words of defund the police. And we see that the problems of institutional racism still there, exactly what the Royal Commission identified in its reports uh, in the late 1980s, early 1990s, and institutional racism is as much a problem now as it was then. So I think it's yeah the lack of change that's really brought about this movement at the moment. Sam, you're the police accountability solicitor, and that feels like a very unique role. I was wondering if you could talk to us about um, why such a role is necessary and what it entails. Yeah, I'll firstly address why the role is necessary. It is a very unique role. But firstly, that police are a part of government. They are a government body and don't sit outside a government body. And for this reason, they are obligated to meet the same requirements as other government departments, and that is transparency, a level of integrity, and a level of accountability. But police are quite unique in terms of their powers. Their powers are extraordinary, and with that power comes an extraordinary responsibility. I would quite like the text within Peter O'Brien's International Torts textbook, he says, with significant power carries with it the corresponding burden of ensuring that such power is not misused or applied arbitrarily or recklessly without proper regard to each person's fundamental human rights. An important thing to acknowledge is that police power is not infinite. It does have limits. Those limits are contained in law, in regulation and in policies and it is our responsibility as individuals and organisations to hold police to account to meet those legal requirements. In terms of the actual practice at Redfern Legal, I'm very proud to be working there. It's the oldest community legal centre I believe in New South Wales, established in 1977. The police practice was established in 2010. It has a long history of working with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and policing and has had some amazing people go through the centre. The practice does look at casework but also is very concerned with transparency of policing practice and obtaining data and trying to identify systemic issues that arise in regards to policing matters. I'd like to acknowledge my co-worker, Sophie Parker, who also does a lot of work with us in that space. The main focus of the practice, as I said, is to share stories, identify systemic issues, and to bring a voice to the people. Great. Thank you. Lyndon, I'll come back to you. And Lucy Sam talks about the enormous power that's vested in the police. If you look historically, that is a power relationship with Aboriginal people that's quite distinct. I was wondering if you could talk to us about what you see as some of the historic dynamics about the police relationship and the Aboriginal community that we should think about when we think of how the power relationship might work now. Yeah, I guess the historic relationship has been since day one, one of conflict and inequity, particularly in terms of power the police are often seen as the arm that oversights those with property and those without. And, of course, our land rights battles have been a big part of that. The role that police have played throughout our history has been significant. They were the ones who enforced theft of land. They were the ones who came and took kids. And we remember that. We don't have to have a very good memory because a lot of these things are still happening today and police have a role in that. 
we saw referred earlier to the treatment, the young Aboriginal men in Redfern. And one of my first responses to that was this happened probably 100 times that day throughout this country, that there was a violent interaction between the police and young Aboriginal people in particular. And when you have those sorts of issues, when you have deaths in police custody within jails, that relationship is utterly broken. And this is what's fueling the, the current calls, that this system is wrong. We can't fix a relationship that exists within these current constructs. And a lot of people have found that very hard to come at. The very idea of defunding the police just blows people's minds because they, they haven't thought about what it is that police do and the impacts on the lives of disadvantaged people and particularly Aboriginal people. But it's actually the police themselves that should be the greatest advocates of this because I have heard throughout my study and throughout my work, police constantly complaining that they are not social workers, that they are not psychologists, that they are not trained in substance abuse and its effects. So all of these things the police are called in to do, and this is part of the relationship and the interactions that we have. And so what we're saying through defunding the police and restructuring this system so that there can be the potential for a better relationship is that these things need to be sorted. They need people who are well-trained or focused on this, who are able to wield the type of power that Sam was talking about in a responsible and constructive way. So these are really big ideas and they're really new to a lot of people. But again, when I was talking about the impacts and longevity of this particular movement, this particular time, people are starting to think about that, people that wouldn't have thought about that before. And so I, I think there is this opportunity to do something while this movement is still so strong. Thanks, Lyndon. Chris, I'm going to come back to you a bit later on about the defund the police idea. Sure. But I thought what I might ask you next, just in the context of that historic relationship that Lyndon spoke to that obviously continues today to shape those arrangements. Mm. I wanted to ask what some of your observations have been about the practice of over-policing in Aboriginal communities over the time you've been working on these issues and just your mm. observations generally about policing practices. Sure. Look, I think, you know, when we were talking, we sort of talked about over-policing back in the 19, early 1990s, it really became a phrase that was used to describe the interaction with police between Aboriginal communities and police, and it was very much about the nature of policing, the extent of policing in Aboriginal communities. And we often used to point to places like Burke where there were a couple of thousand people, majority of about half of whom were Aboriginal and about 36 police stationed there in a small community. I mean, I think, you know, the nature of policing has definitely changed really from the late 1990s to the early 2000s. You had the rise of new ideas around zero tolerance policing the broken windows theory, which influenced policing here in this country uh, as much as it did anywhere else. And that really led to an even greater focus on street offences, on minor offences. And so I think the lesson from that is really the question about over-policing has not improved. If anything, it's got worse. It has a new rhetoric, a new kind of range of concepts and words that are used around it. We've seen the rise of risk the concept of risk throughout the criminal justice system and particularly in policing. And we see you know, programs like STOMP, the suspect target management plans being used in New South Wales, again, disproportionately affecting young Aboriginal kids within this framework of risk. But you know, the bottom line of all of this sort of new language, whether we're talking about risk and risk assessment or broken windows theory or zero tolerance, underpinning that is still very much an older story about over-policing about an extensive nature of contact between police and Aboriginal people, poor people, disadvantaged people, people with mental health issues, cognitive impairments. And so, you know, I think the, the problems are still there, although they've been redefined with different types of language, if you like, but still the same targets. Thank you. Sam, I was wondering if you could talk to us about your work, looking at the types of complaints you're working on? What are some of the key issues that keep arising? And particularly if you could provide some examples to give people a bit of an understanding of the sorts of issues that come up in your work. 
Yeah, thank you. Look, there's some key issues that routinely come up, but I'll concentrate also on issues that come up for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. There's certainly an issue that arises a lot, which I would probably term as generational harassment uh, of, of police. For example, we have a client who lives in a regional area in New South Wales, an older woman uh, with various children, police tap on her door and ask where a relative is. Uh, she doesn't know. They then barge into her house without a, a warrant. They then go and harass her son or, or daughter in, a, in another space. And that's quite a, a common theme that comes up in our practice. In terms of, you know, what you do with that, it doesn't always necessarily fall neatly within a legal or civil matter Sometimes a lot of policing falls outside any kind of legal avenue and that's why this complaints practice is very necessary. Other issues that come up is a failure to act. For example, a person may report an alleged crime and police have such wide discretion as to whether they will act upon an allegation and that will depend on who's making the reporting there's no doubt that we see through our practice that police make a pretty quick assessment. If a person is Aboriginal, they're known to police that they will not act on various allegations. And sometimes these are quite serious allegations of violence against them. Another common issue that comes up, particularly for Aboriginal youth, is routine and random stop and searches. Chris touched upon this in terms of the STMP, a young man, for example, or young boys going about their daily routine or sometimes even scared to go out of their house because of police stopping and searching them. And sometimes we have clients who have been stopped and searched 30 or 40 times in a two or three year period. Thank you. I think one thing that comes out of what you're saying through your work, and I think it's highlighted through Chris's work as well, is the amount of discretion that police have in terms of making decisions within the frameworks of the laws that they're implementing and within those regulations. Lyndon, police are products of the broader community. And I was just wondering what your thoughts were about whether police training is part of the solution or how we change attitudes more broadly, thinking about the work you've done in the reconciliation space. Yeah, I, I think it's all of those things. We are talking before about a redefinition of the role and indeed structure of police and policing. My problem with that, and I think Chris alluded to it with the training, is that these things have happened. We've had inquiries, royal commissions. We've seen corruption episodes within police and, and the abuse of the enormous power that they have which is why people have made very admirable attempts to try and work within the current structures and the current systems to get reform, to make things work better. And when we think about their training and and the traditions of police, these are the the sorts of things that, you know, again, very big issues that we need to address, that people in power have enormous responsibility. How do they use these powers to do better? So one of the the calls throughout the Black Lives Matter protests is that people were imploring police to say, you're one of us, you are part of this society. And to see how quick police are to violence against protesters. When we had the protests here in Sydney and there was an incident right at the end of the day at Central after it had been very well organised, protests, people (laughs) obeying covid restrictions, people with masks, everyone was very respectful. And it was like the scorpion and the frog to me. It was like the police couldn't let that day go without an incident. And it appeared that they they were determined to do it, to create a response, and the media was almost begging them to. So this is the sort of dynamic and the social construct that we're operating in. And I'm just out of ideas about how we we fix it in this current system. Otherwise, we need a new system. 
That's Industry Professor of Indigenous Policy at the Jumbana Institute, Lyndon Coombs. You also heard Samantha Lee, Police Accountability Solicitor at the Redfern Legal Centre and Professor of Criminology at the Jumbana Institute, Chris Kinnean. Speaking out with Larissa Barron. The knowledge, the culture, the arts, the language, the law and customs of Indigenous people. On ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia, on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt. And if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. We'll return to our justice panel discussion shortly, but right now, some music from Maisha, a proud Anunga and Torres Strait Islander woman from Warabinda in central Queensland. Here she is with her latest song, Twisting Words. That's Queensland-based R&B soul singer Maisha with Twisting Words. On Speaking Out this evening, we're featuring the discussion Black Lives Matter, a roadmap for policing and justice reform in Australia. One of the major issues for justice advocates in recent years has been the use of strip searches by the police, with concerns over the legality of the practices employed. As Samantha explains, research has found the system disproportionately impacts First Nations communities. Yes, thank you. We developed a campaign to change and shed light on strip search practice in New South Wales after a number of people came to our practice and described what we thought and believed to be unlawful strip search practice 
And from our casework, we identified a systemic issue, we believe, which is unlawful strip searching and a very widespread practice. And I believe a practice that has festered for many years and that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have borne the brunt of this practice over a long, long period of time. So we commissioned a report from the University of New South Wales Law School. Dr Vicky Sentis and Dr Michael Krukok undertook this report. And I just want to share with you some of the statistics that we have. What's the key findings being is that uh, there's been a 20-fold increase in strip searches since 2006, moving from 277 strip searches to over 5,500 strip searches in 2018. I believe, though, that there's a dramatic under-reporting in strip searches, so you could probably even at least double that figure, and that also came out of the public hearings done by the LEC in regards to strip searches. On average, 63% of strip searches find absolutely nothing, and when they do find something, around 82% of those are for minor drug possession. In terms of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, They make up 10% of strip searches uh, in New South Wales, even though they only make up 3% of the actual population. They also made up 22% of all recorded, emphasise the word recorded, strip searches in custody. As I said, there'll be many strip searches that have gone unrecorded over a very long period of time. The youngest recorded Aboriginal child strip search was of 10 years of age. The oldest is 75 years of age. The majority of strip searches happen or occur to 20 to 30-year-olds group. 82 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children aged between 10 and 17, those are the recorded ones, have been strip searched in a two-year period. We did find some hot spots in terms of strip searches, regional areas, Nowra and Taree, also in the Sydney government area. But what it does say to me is strip searches have become routine by police. Police aren't following legal thresholds that they are required to. Major concern is is that the law fails to reflect any form of child protection principle. When you think about it, you have an adult ordering a child as young as 10 to take off all of their clothing in a strange environment What other area of practice would allow that to happen? I think it's absolutely appalling that it should still exist in this day and age. It's an enormously invasive and humiliating process. There's awful stories out there. Some, as I said, have never been recorded. And it's time that this practice does stop. And so we have announced a registration into a class action I'll uh, send out the link for that uh, registration. We would like Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to come forward who have been strip searched in the past six years. Being strip searched doesn't mean taking off all of your clothing. It could be a police officer looking down the top into a young woman's breast area, pulling out the back of their pants and looking down into their underpants or private areas. It could be taking off all of your clothing But if you have been strip searched in the past six years, then please go to our website or Slater and Gordon's website and register for the class action. Chris, I asked you earlier about your observations about over-policing over the, the many years you've been looking at it. And I was wondering, perhaps on a more positive note, changes you've seen perhaps since the Royal Commission that you think have made a difference? Well, it's a surprisingly difficult question. <laughs> I think, you know, to be to be positive about it. I mean, we know that there's more Aboriginal people in prison. We know that police violence is a, a sort of ongoing problem. The time when the Royal Commission reported was a relatively optimistic time about bringing about change in the justice system. And I think what we've seen is often progressively more punitive approaches to law and order. So having said all that, what can we say that's positive? Well, I think there are positive things that can be pointed to, and that's particularly in relation to the role of Aboriginal communities in themselves taking on these issues. And 
whether it's engaging within the current system through things like the Murray Court or the Curry Court, Noongar Courts and so forth. I mean, they're all post-Royal Commission phenomena I mean, and they're positive, I think. We've seen other areas where there's been the growth in Aboriginal community-run programs for young people, for adults that are in contact with the justice system. We've seen the development over the last decade of justice reinvestment and you know, the most well-known example of that is in Burke, which has had quite significant positive impacts on contact with the justice system. But there are lots of other less known or less well-known programs under justice reinvestment that are running around the place by Aboriginal community organisations. Port Adelaide's an example. Halls Creek, where there's some great work going on there under the ideas of justice reinvestment for young people, not only in Halls Creek, but in surrounding communities like Warman and Balgo and so on. So I think there are positive things that are happening at a community level that are Aboriginal-driven and controlled. And I think, yeah, despite the kind of vast array of negative stuff surrounding all of this, at a community level, we see some really great things happening. I was going to come back to you, but I think I'll go into my last question for you now. But I was wondering what your thoughts around the defund the police approach could be going forward, especially in its impact on how we may look at law and order in the future? Yeah, look, I think that the greatest thing about the defund the police is that it captures the need to think differently. And I think Lyndon was sort of alluding to this earlier as well, that, yeah, we need to reimagine what's happening in relation to policing. And I don't think it's going to be an easy task. I don't think the police, no matter how rationally we might discuss it with them, are going to voluntarily give up power. And we can see the problem straight away with the current attempt to raise the minimum age of criminal responsibility, which police have not been supportive of in general, because they don't want to lose the power to arrest 10-year-olds. You know, And if we can't get over that barrier, how are we going to get over the bigger ones around defund the police? But look, it does open up an opportunity to think about how we shift resources to communities, to community-based organisations, to services for people, rather than seeing every problem in society as a policing problem. And we do that. We've just done it with COVID-19. I mean, who was the lead agency in New South Wales? It was the police. That speaks a volume about how we deal with public health issues. We need this new discourse, and I think the Defund the Police slogan, it is a slogan, you know, captures a different way of thinking about how we do things. Thanks, Chris. Sam, I just wanted to check in with you finally just to see what changes you think we should be prioritising going forward and what you're working on next. Two main things. One thing, as I have just spoken about, is change to strip search laws and practice and bring damages for people that have already been traumatised. But another area that we're about to look at is the actual complaint system itself. It's flawed it needs fixing. I like the words of Dr. Vicky Centers, who wrote an excellent, very short paper, and she says a core component of accountable policing is an effective complaint system and is well established that justice and accountability are undermined in a system where police investigate themselves. The current complaint system is deficient. It holds huge barriers for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who want to complain about police behaviour but don't want to complain to police about police behaviour. Not all wrongdoing by police is unlawful. It could just be purely improper and therefore, as I said, it doesn't fall into any kind of legal action. And so there has to be an avenue for a complaint system, a proper equitable complaint system to exist. It's also really important that that complaint system is well-resourced has expertise and has all the necessary funding on an ongoing basis to support a whole range of complaints. The most important complaint system will deal with just the daily policing that uh, young people and adults come against. Sometimes not all complaints fall into serious misconduct, but it's the daily routine policing that requires an avenue for accountability. Thank you. Lyndon, I think your observation about feeling like reforms within the current system are futile is to record. So my final question to you was how agendas like truth-telling and treaty might lead to more substantial changes. Is that where you think there might be some hope? Yeah, I do. You need to change the rules of the game, not just in policing, but more broadly, working in Aboriginal affairs for over 20 years, I am absolutely exhausted showing up to government without power 
um, without leverage, uh, without justice or, or equity. You know, we have to be 10 times smarter to get what we need and to do the things that we want to do. And for me, the framework of a treaty resets the relationship and these things that we're talking about. So reallocation of power and, as Chris sort of inferred, the police aren't giving this up lightly at all. There's not even a change in the language to say, yep, look, something's wrong here. You just heard from both Sam and Chris, kids getting strip searched, the violence, police investigating themselves, the age of criminal responsibility at 10 being argued against. They're not going to yield up. And so we need a completely different system in which we can respond to that because at the moment the deck's stacked and it's very difficult for us to get justice. It's very difficult for the families of those who have died in custody to get justice, and and that needs to change. Thank you. I might just try and pull in a couple of the questions from the audience, from everyone online. I just wanted to share Alexis Goodstone's comment. She said, we need better minister and commissioners to lead the police with progressive evidence-based policy. How can we get the community not to settle for less, which I'm going to leave with all of us as something to ponder because I thought a good question perhaps for Chris and Sam might be a comment that's come from um, after hearing Lyndon's frustrations about reforms within the, the system appearing futile. The question is, what can law students and emerging lawyers do to assist the Black Lives Matter movement in Australia? Well, I'm going to say something which is an historical answer to a contemporary question. The way in which the Aboriginal legal services started in Australia, in Redfern, was by law students going and working with Aboriginal activists to directly assist Aboriginal people. And that's really the answer to the question. And, and, you know, the outcome of that, Aboriginal organisation, which has been running for 50 years and is now a group of national bodies that represent Aboriginal people, and activist law students were a great help in setting that up. And Sam? Yeah, thanks, Chris. Yes, we still utilise many law students at uh, Redfern Legal Centre. They are a passionate and a fantastic resource for any community legal centre. So I I do encourage them to reach out to community legal centres, but to other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander organisations. But I think mainly is to be informed about police powers and their limitations and to inform others about those limitations. Thank you. And I will actually throw the question to you, Lyndon, perhaps with a slightly different flavour and and ask what can our ally, the Black Lives Matter movement? To listen, to provide the space, to not centre yourself in these discussions and I say that just because oftentimes I've worked in not-for-profits and, and different areas and people want to help Aboriginal people naturally with their own skills and abilities, but often that's not what is required. And sometimes the best intentions lead to not great outcomes. And so really listening to, to Indigenous people, one of them gives me some solace because I've sounded a bit cranky and frustrated here, and I am, but I do believe in the strength and wisdom of our communities, of Indigenous communities. And if we're able to listen, and it is a skill, and it's something to develop for all of us, to hear what those communities are saying and then try to respond to that in a respectful way, that would be general advice. Great, thanks. I think we can just squeeze one more quick comment in from you, Chris. There's been a few questions raised about, I guess, thinking about the proposals or thoughts that have been given to what justice might look like outside of policing and prisons. And I wonder if maybe you could just quickly refer to some of the big ideas in that space that go beyond thinking about those institutions in terms of what justice might look like. Look, I think to go back to Lyndon's point, if we're thinking about this in relation to Aboriginal people in Australia, it, it has to be about decolonising the institutions within which we work. It has to be thinking about what justice means for Aboriginal people. And there's absolutely no reason to believe that Aboriginal people in Australia are going to define justice in anywhere near the same way as non-Indigenous colonising institutions define justice. So I think the big idea is to actually think about what the decolonisation of justice might look like and what 
or the way in which Aboriginal people and Aboriginal organisations understand justice and the whole kind of broad parameters about what justice might mean from reparations through to um, kind of more mundane interactions with maintaining social order within communities and so on. Thanks, Chris. It's now my pleasure to introduce David Shoebridge, MLC. He is the New South Wales Green spokesman for a number of issues, including Aboriginal issues, justice and child protection, and has been following tonight's conversation closely. David, there have been a range of complex issues on the table tonight, many of them requiring legislative change if we hope to see concrete reform. What's been your reading of it? Oh, th- thanks, Larissa. And it's excellent to be here following such a, a powerful initial panel. I'd like to start by acknowledging that as a member of the New South Wales Parliament, I'm actually a member of an institution that has created many of the problems you heard spoken about from those initial panellists. Whether it's the laws that allow for the over-policing, it's the resourcing of police that allow for the over-policing or the the refusal to confront the systemic injustices that First Nations people face, as well as, of course, you know, laws that continue to dispossess and harm Aboriginal people in this state and, in most cases, prize resources and exploitation ahead of things such as Aboriginal traditional cultural sites and Aboriginal ownership of the land. So, Uh, Speaking from the New South Wales Parliament, I think you need to acknowledge that I'm part of an institution that is a big part of the problem. I wanted to take a little step back from the discussion about police and policing, because you've heard all of the problems with policing, and you've you've had three panellists who set out a number of kind of critical reforms. And the question is, well, why haven't they been uh, adopted by the New South Wales Parliament? Why haven't we put in laws that limit the way in which police do strip searches? Why haven't we put in laws that put in place essential protection measures so that Aboriginal kids are being constantly stopped and searched under things like the Suspect Target Management Program. And I think one of the reasons is that the New South Wales police have an extraordinarily hold on politics in New South Wales. Perhaps one of the most powerful political voices in New South Wales, I think, isn't the Liberal Party or the National Party or the Labor Party. Perhaps one of the the most powerful political voices in New South Wales in my mind, is the New South Wales Police, and often that comes through the New South Wales Police Association. So there's a lot of barriers to reform structurally within politics. But I think one of the other key issues, I believe, that comes to the fore when you talk about policing and the over-policing of Aboriginal people in this state is that it's just one small part of the way in which the state of New South Wales, and it's mirrored across the country, over-polices and acts in a racially biased way against First Nations peoples. It starts at the very beginning of an Aboriginal person's life journey in somewhere like New South Wales. I mean, just today, my office was contacted by a young Aboriginal mum who had her baby taken from the hospital at birth because she was on a thing called a high-risk birth alert. And high-risk birth alerts are where far too often Aboriginal mums are conceived to be a risk to their child Um, Before the child is born, they're not told they're on a high-risk birth alert. They go into a hospital. The high-risk birth alert is activated. Mum goes out the front door. Baby goes out the back door. Child is taken. Stolen generations continue. And the child protection system itself in New South Wales is horribly skewed against First Nations peoples. And we know that Aboriginal kids in this state are 10 times more likely to be taken from their families than non-Aboriginal kids. And, and, And that begins a journey for many Aboriginal families and Aboriginal kids of dysfunction, engagement with the juvenile justice system and a massive over-representation of of Aboriginal kids in in the juvenile detention system in New South Wales. Tonight, half the kids in juvenile detention in this state will be Aboriginal kids, um, well over 10 times greater than what should be their representation. And then that engagement in juvenile detention flows through into engagement in adult incarceration Uh, A third of the the women in jail tonight in New South Wales will be Aboriginal. A quarter of the men will be Aboriginal men, grossly overrepresented. uh, And that flows into health impacts, socioeconomic impacts. So at each point where the state interacts with Aboriginal people in in, in New South Wales, and it's mirrored across the country, at each point there is, in my observation, a powerful racial bias against Aboriginal people. And policing is one part of this. So when you're talking about reforming policing, to improve the outcomes for Aboriginal people. You need to keep in mind that we actually need to reform the whole state interaction. And trying to persuade my fellow MPs in this institution 
that we actually have a systemically biased system against First Nations people. We have institutional entrenched racial bias at pretty much every point that the state interacts with First Nations people is, I think, a, a pretty fundamental challenge because it challenges their worldview. It challenges their view about Australia being a fair, just and equitable society. And I think that challenge is one of the reasons why it's so hard to get some of the critical reforms because it challenges our sense of ourselves. I would say, in my mind, the answer to all of these, what often seem to be intractable problems, is actually self-determination and empowerment and resourcing of Aboriginal communities. The answer for Aboriginal kids being taken is to actually empower Aboriginal families and Aboriginal kids and resource them so that they make decisions. The answer to dealing with issues in relation to juvenile justice is resourcing and acknowledging and empowering the elders and those knowledge circles in Aboriginal communities and, and, and giving economic empowerment to those Aboriginal communities and families so that there's a positive response. And in a substantial part, the answer must be in a, a concept of justice reinvestment. We call it defunding the police, but uh, the way we traditionally talked about it in New South Wales is justice reinvestment, taking the resources that are currently being used to jail and criminalise Aboriginal communities and investing them into strengthening and having not only the right to self-determination, but the resources and the, the support to make that self-determination work. One of the questions is, is there a place for police in Aboriginal communities at all? Well, I think if there is, it's a very limited place. And you heard Lyndon speak about the reaction and the assessment that Aboriginal people have of the police, of our courts, for pretty much every Aboriginal community member that I've worked with, every group that I've worked with, their perception of the police, their perception of the court system is fundamentally different to non-Aboriginal people. They see, in, in pretty bold terms, they see an ongoing invasion colonialist state criminalising their kids, taking their land. And when they engage with organisations like the New South Wales Police, they know they're engaging in, in large part with an occupying power. And I think that's a very valid perception because that's the reality. So I believe that the less interaction we have between the police and Aboriginal communities, um, in large part, the safer Aboriginal communities and the stronger Aboriginal communities will be. Of course, you know, there'll be, there'll be a necessary element of policing for serious crimes and a necessary engagement of policing in Aboriginal communities within our current system, but it should be a far, far smaller footprint. And I think that we should acknowledge that every time there's an interaction between police and Aboriginal communities, there's a very strong racist bias in that interaction. I've been asked how do mothers get placed on the high-risk birth alert list. The, the most usual way in which a woman finds herself having been identified as a high-risk birth alert and being on the list is if they've had a previous child and they've had an interaction with family and community services for the previous child, or if they themselves were taken and were in the out-of-home care, notionally under the care of the minister, and therefore they may find just as they progress into adulthood, they're automatically subscribed on the high-risk birth alert. And women are not told about this. Often the first time they find out that they're on a high-risk birth um, alert is when they come into hospital their name is run through the system and then there's pretty much an automatic removal of their child. And, and you talk to some women and it may be their, their second or their third child. They may, in some cases, have had terrible difficulties with their life and their partners with their first child. They've got their life back together. They're on a strong footing, but they're still on the list and they still face having their child removed as soon as it's born from hospital. The, the amount of grief that causes, the amount of pain that causes in having a baby taken at birth is pretty hard to uh, comprehend. And indeed, the most recently released report on the out-of-home care system and how it interacts with Aboriginal people, the Families Culture Report, makes it clear that high-risk birth alert systems should be completely abolished and removed. That's something I, I fundamentally agree with. And indeed, there's a blueprint for reform that the New South Wales government could take when it comes to reforming the out-of-home care system to deal with some of those dreadful statistics, and that is the Families Culture Report. There's over 120 recommendations in there. The government has recently responded to it and, and has largely parked the majority of those key recommendations. There's a lot of work to be done. Uh, I've got a question here, sorry, from Romina about how about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island people trained as police? Would that have a positive interaction in communities? Well, I think it would have a marginally beneficial impact. Having more Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander police, New South Wales Aboriginal police, would have some assistance in dealing with the culture of the New South Wales police. But that's not going to change the nature of the animal. 
which is the New South Wales Police. It's much more likely to put those Aboriginal police in a highly compromised position when it comes to dealing with their community. And that's been the history in large part of Aboriginal police members to date that you speak with. Yes, there's a marginal benefit, but more often than not, the price is paid by the individual Aboriginal police officer who finds themselves being compromised and often at odds with their community rather than there being a fundamental change in the New South Wales police force. I don't think that's the way we get cultural reform, but it's it's not a bad thing in and of itself. I've got from Matt, is it really socially and politically impossible for current New South Wales legislators to put forward legislation that completely closes and dismantles all juvenile detention centres and juvenile prisons? Well, I'd say, unfortunately, I think it is yes at the moment, but surely that should be our goal, to close all juvenile prisons, to stop jailing kids. The current challenge at the moment is raising the age of criminal responsibility to 14. And, and I fear that may even be beyond the current crop. But it's not as though there is no hope. I think you must engage with mainstream politics. You need to engage with the New South Wales Parliament. And, and the good news is that there are small cracks appearing. We, for example, established just a month ago um, a motion that I put on the books on behalf of the Greens, but was almost unanimously adopted. I think One Nation voted against it, but enormously broadly supported in the New South Wales Parliament which was to establish a multi-party inquiry into how we fix the oversight of deaths in custody. And in, in establishing that inquiry, the parliament acknowledged the gross and unacceptable over-representation of First Nations peoples in deaths in custody. And it's in the context of that that the inquiry has been established. And we really need to make sure for those Aboriginal families who have lost somebody to a death in custody, that when there's an investigation of them, that it's done by an independent, genuinely independent body. It's not done by the prison system itself. It's not just done by the prisons and police, but we have a genuinely independent body so that people feel like, families feel like they have justice and a sense of integrity in the investigation of deaths. Because as we know, First Nations people have grossly overrepresented in deaths in custody, not just in New South Wales, but across the entire country. Jade has asked, what are the strategies moving forward for police to respond to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander individuals and community to create more diversionary responses to the justice system? Well, the first thing I'd say is the less interactions between the police and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, the safer, in large part, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities will be. And so we need to have as many strategies as possible to avoid police being the first responders. Where there are instances of mental health, we should be sending mental health teams into communities. Where there are concerns about breakdowns in, in family setting, we should be sending in highly trained social workers or we should be engaging with the aunties and the uncles and the grandmothers in those Aboriginal communities and using them as our initial response rather than sending people in with a uniform and a gun and a taser, capsicum spray and a baton and a mentality that is the New South Wales police force. And I think that is the answer in large part to making Aboriginal communities safer in this state, reducing as far as possible their interactions with New South Wales police because the extent of the over-policing, the overcharging, is, I think, a significant part of the problem. You've just heard New South Wales Greens MLC, David Shoebridge. He was speaking at an online forum around police accountability organised by the Redfern Legal Centre and the National Justice Project. You've also been listening to Industry Professor of Indigenous Policy at the Jumbana Institute, Lyndon Coombs, Professor of Criminology at the Jumbana Institute, Chris Kinneen, and Samantha Lee, Police Accountability Solicitor at the Redfern Legal Centre. Next week on Speaking Out, we'll bring you the second part in this special discussion on the need for systemic reform around policing and justice in Australia. Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au. We would love to hear from you. I'm Larissa Berendt and this is Speaking Out. <laughs>